This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. The legal information presented on In Legal Terms is meant to provide general information about the topics discussed and is not necessarily the opinion of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The information conveyed does not create any type of attorney-client relationship. Please consult an attorney provider before making any decisions about your specific legal questions. Welcome to In Legal Terms from MPB Think Radio, the show all about you and your rights. I'm Liz Gill with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. Hello, Professor Gershon. Happy primary election day. Thanks, Liz. Uh, you know, it's. I hope everybody gets out and votes, and uh, good, to, good to be with you this morning. It's good to be with you. I hope this topic will be helpful today. Um, you know, it's not not a pleasant uh, item that we're talking about, taxes or taxes while going through a divorce, but I hope we provide some comfort, some reassurance, at least some facts and some guidance for those who are going through divorces either in 2019 or who might go through one in 2020 or even 2021, looking ahead and at least having some knowledge of what to expect. Right. And, you know, the tax consequences really are just they're just economics is really all they are. I mean, and so when people are unfortunately splitting up their relationship, they need to think about you know the best economic way to do it for, for both parties if possible. And taxes play a role in that that consideration. So this month we've we're going to be talking about family law last our previous episode. We talked about child issues, children issues, custody, and things like that. Our next broadcast, we'll be talking about the laws concerning divorce. But today, let's talk about the tax consequences of divorce. And why is this something that even matters? Well, you know, it's so interesting. I, I, I talk to a lot of people who do family law, and they, they will quickly say most of them, many of them anyway, that they don't they don't give tax advice. And I think, um, you know, that's uh, but it's still an important part of consideration. For example, if I have to pay alimony, you know, what are the tax consequences of that child support? Uh, property settlements, you know, are there better ways to do it for tax reasons? Who? You know, can, how do we file at the end of the year uh, of our divorce? So all those questions are things that matter to people, and a lot of times they're not answers for them. One thing I think is special about this show, usually with a couple, you've got the one person who does the taxes, and the other person doesn't, and just, you know, signs wherever they say sign, and... If you're going through a divorce or you've gone through a divorce, you may be the person who hasn't ever done the taxes before. This may be something new and different. Um, so I hope we're going to be able to give them some good advice. Now, taxpayers, you know, this always you always have to kind of keep the calendar in your head. Taxpayers will be filing their returns by April 15th unless they get an extension. So what should a couple do if they were married for part of 2019, but on December 31st, 2019, they were divorced? 
Right. It's a great question. And, you know, really, it's all for, for anyone. I mean, for people who get married in a year, uh, we're going to look at the end of the year and what your status was at the end of the year. So if they were uh, divorced at the end of the year, uh, then they have to uh, fi- they, they will not be filing as a joint a joint filing, uh, married filing jointly. Excuse me. I'm, I'm stumbling over that. But, you know, um, if they were getting divorced, they knew they were going to get divorced, but they were still married at the end of the year, they can still file jointly or they can file uh, married filing separately. Uh, but if they were divorced, let's say that someone was divorced at the end of 29, uh, then they are no, 2019, they are no longer are going to be uh, married filing jointly. Uh, it's possible if someone, uh, if there are children involved, that one of the uh, former spouses can file as head of household. And head of household actually is a filing status that uh, reduces your tax rate a little bit. So those are all things that people need to consider. All right. So suppose you were married during 2019, but you got your divorce on January 2nd. We won't say the first because the courthouse was probably closed, but whatever. So maybe you got your divorce on January 2nd of 2020. What would make you decide to file jointly or to file uh, separately? Well, you know, really, it doesn't make that much difference uh, in terms of the combined taxes the couple will pay. Uh, what's important consideration is if you file jointly, you are uh, considered to be both jointly and severally liable for any underpayments, for any uh, fraud that may be committed. So, you know, one of the things that in a, couples in a divorce may consider filing separately just so that they're not uh, responsible for any misreporting of their, their soon-to-be former spouse, and that's one of the things to think about. There is something called the innocent spouse rule that would uh, say if I signed a return and didn't know that my spouse was committing fraud, uh, that I am protected. But, you know, that's hard to prove because the assumption is uh, that if you took a benefit from your spouse's fraud, that you are also responsible unless you file separately. So that's one consideration. Uh, the other thing is that uh, maybe uh, my income uh, and my deductions would be uh, offset better on my own separate return than uh, if I had to combine my income with my spouse. But overall, the couple together will still pay the same amount of tax, whether they file separately or jointly. Oh, so any, what is it, uh, uh, marriage bonuses or any extra uh, special treatment that a married couple would get, they still get that if they're filing separately? They do. They just, uh, you know, it's really what happens is the rates for a married couple are cut right in half. And it really is so that I, a separate a spouse married filing separately uh, gets to the higher bracket twice as fast as they would if they were filing uh, as a uh, joint couple. You know, but that happens for both of them. So, the, again, the combined income uh, tax would not be any higher uh, if they did it that way. Uh, it won't be any lower. Uh, there was a marriage penalty, by the way. Uh, for a while, a, a married couple um, combining their income paid more tax than, uh, than two single people living together. That was rectified to a large extent. Uh, it's still not completely rectified, but to a large extent by the uh, Tax Act of 2017. But that it was there for a long time that if you were married, if I was making $30,000 and my uh, partner was making $30,000 when we were living together, not married, we would pay less as two single people filing our taxes separately than we would as a married couple uh, reporting $60,000. And that was called the marriage penalty. 
so let me recap for my head is if you were going through divorce proceedings, but you're still married at the end of 2019, you could file separately, and that would just separate and protect each individual from the taxes the other owed. Maybe you could do that if you suspected shenanigans? Right, and that's the thing. I think, you know, uh, uh, there there are stories about spouses who were surprised that they're their spouse was committing some kind of tax fraud, not paying their taxes, uh, uh, underreporting, uh, severely underreporting, and they signed a joint return, and they were responsible as well. Uh, you know, there, as I mentioned, there's something called the innocent spouse rule. But you know, if someone sees that, you know, or if they sign a, a return that says that they're making fifty thousand dollars a year as a couple, and they're living in a multi-million dollar home and buying multi-million dollar boats. You know, the the IRS is going to be suspicious that you could possibly be an innocent spouse in that situation. So, yeah, when you sign that that joint return, you are saying we are jointly liable for anything that was reported in this return. What's been the divorce rate in Mississippi for the last five years? I'll tell you next. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit and Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. This is in legal terms. Not everyone has a chance to listen to our show live. If you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show at inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. It's also available on the MPB Public Media app, as are all our local shows. I'm Liz Gill. I'm here with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. Now, according to the CDC, which is an interesting place to get divorce statistics. I guess the Center for Disease Controls. I don't know. I hope uh, divorce isn't a disease that you can catch. Anyway, Mississippi's divorce rate is going down from 3.4 in 2014 and 2015, 3.2 in 2016, 2.9 in 2017, and 2.7 in 2018. This morning we're talking about tax law concerning those going through a divorce. We're doing family law month here at In Legal Terms. So, Professor Gershon, after a divorce, which spouse does get to claim the children as dependents on their tax return? It's a great question, and it's an important question, and it's one that typically defaults to the custodial parents, so the person who has primary residential custody. You know, we mostly talk about joint custody, uh, joint legal custody in these day, this day and age where the parents share parental responsibility. Um, some states even call it shared parental responsibility uh, and not custody. Custody always sounds like, you know, that you've got them, uh, you know, locked up somewhere and under control. But, you know, so shared parental responsibility is typically the way we look at it. But only one of them can take 
what used to be the dependency exemption, which is now considered a child credit. So it's a similar kind of thing that will save the uh, taxpayer some money by claiming the children. Uh, but it's usually the custodial parent. Is this a box that is ticked on the divorce decree? It can be. I mean, that's something that can be negotiated. And in fact, you know, for example, let's say the the person who is the non-custodial parent, the person who has uh, legal responsibility but does not have primary residential uh, custody of the children may be the one with the the higher income. And it may make more sense for that person to be able to reduce their taxes by taking the child tax credit. And so um, the parties can agree to, to, you know, decide that that person will take that uh, credit, but the the uh, custodial parent, the one who is the primary residential parent, has to f- sign a form eighty three thirty two. That's a uh, IRS form eighty three thirty two. It's freely available available online, and it is a release, revocation of release, or claim of, uh, for the exemption of a custodial parent. So, what that is is a parent can say, "I'll, I'll give up the right to uh, take the uh, tax credit this year," or for the foreseeable future, and they can always revoke that. You have to file that uh, form, and both parties really need to include that form when they uh, send in their taxes, because one thing the IRS doesn't want to see is that both people are taking that uh, that tax credit. Can you do it every other year? I get them on odd years. You get them on e- even years like you might do holidays? You can. I mean, in fact, uh, it's one of those things that... Um, you know, it also creates a situation where that person who can claim the, the children uh, for that year can also uh, take head of household status on their tax return, which is, again, a little bit of a lower tax rate and a, a better tax rate. Um, it's probably not better to do it that way where they're switching. Usually what will happen is uh, one parent will uh, maybe be paying alimony to the other, child support to the other, uh, you know, having a higher income, uh, and that person... Uh, will probably be allocated the uh, the, the child tax credit uh, and the ability to use head of household. So you know, but it, it, it's you know the parties are, are allowed to make those decisions. They just have to make sure they file that form because the one thing that will trigger uh, a problem for them is if they both claim the tax credit. And I've heard of that happening. I would assume a lot of times when there's a divorce is because the parties can't get along and i would hope a lot of this is a lot of this spelled out in divorce decrees or like when you mentioned uh, divorce lawyers often don't give tax advice is this something they overlook well, hopefully not. I mean, I do hope uh, that in order to give full service, they really are thinking about, you know, at least at least this issue where children are involved and in, in trying to get that resolved. If there's nothing said, though, then the parent who has primary residential responsibility, so where the children are most of the time, will, in, by default, uh, be allowed to take that tax credit. The one thing, again, they have to make sure is that they're both not doing it because they'll get a nasty letter from the Internal Revenue Service saying, uh, you know, you can't basically you can't both be taking this credit. So. Uh, one of you is wrong. You need to resolve this. You need to send us the form eighty three thirty two, or uh, you know, you need to adjust your taxes accordingly. Man, that's I don't ever want to get on the wrong side of the IRS. So I would try. I would make sure if uh, that I, I try to I try to follow all of the lines and all of the steps. I, I wouldn't want to get the the you did something naughty letter from the IRS. So to just recap. Uh, 
usually the custodial parent claims the children as dependents, but is there a time when the non-custodial parent can? Yes, and that, again, is when the parties agree, uh, and they file a Form 80... I got to look it up again. Eighty three thirty two. Yeah, you know, you think you think I memorize all this? I really don't. Um, and they are, the forms are all online; they're easily easily findable. But it's a simple form. It's a really simple form to fill out that basically says, "I waive uh, my rights this year to claim this person as dependent or these people as dependent, or I uh, in future years." And you can also revoke uh, that uh, that statement as well on that same form. You know, both parties have to agree to that. Um, and so hopefully, you know, this is one of those things we talked about it with Debbie Bell last week. We, we want the parties to work together. We want them to try to work these things out, to think about these issues. Uh, more and more agreements are being entered into privately and not going through full uh, court hearings. And so, you know, we, if, if parties especially are, are coming into their own terms together, which is a good thing, uh, they need to think about, well, what about some of these tax issues and how are we going to work through them? Now, remind us, why does it even matter who gets to claim the children? Well, there are a couple of reasons. One is that uh, you can, if you can claim the children, even though you're not married, there's a special filing status called head of household uh, that is a better filing status than single. I mean, you'll pay less tax on on your income than you would as a, a single taxpayer. Uh, filing, uh, you know, as a single taxpayer. So, um, you know, that's one benefit. The other is the tax, the child tax credit, which can be up to $2,000 per child. So, and it's, and that is a refundable credit. So if the credits that you have exceed the income, the tax that you owe, you actually will get money back. Uh, and so, you know, there are reasons why that, that credit could be useful for someone. It used to be, we talked about the uh, claiming the, the dependent and being able to take them as an exemption on your tax return. Uh, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act changed that to a tax credit. There is no more exemption. My three children all went to college, and we had to fill out so many forms because we couldn't just pay outright for it. But the to, to, to get aid, you have the, the financial, which is federal assistance for uh, financial. I don't know. Financial assistance for families. I don't even know what FAFSA is. I've blocked that from my mind like a, a bad dream. And the CSS profile, that for uh, private schools, gosh, they want to know almost to the penny what's in your bank account. All these profiles are based on tax returns. Um, if there's a divorce, how does that work? Well, you mentioned the CSSO profile, by the way. I have to laugh because uh, someone tweeted one time that um, she had to report how many uh, slices of pepperoni she got on her pizza or how many toppings she got on her pizza uh, to the CSS profile. So you're they do joking, ask but that is, you're not joking. <laughs> I am joking. Joking, I am joking. but not joking. I mean, they want to know how many miles are on your car. Yeah, no, it's it, it's pretty pretty detailed, whereas the FAFSA, which is the freely available form for student aid, is what for it, federal it is. Right? Only student because aid. You're federal student aid. Yeah. Yes. So, um, you know, that that form is uh, hard enough to fill out, but then trying to figure out, you know, how to get the tax returns in. And and you and I both know that you can link 
uh, the form and get the tax information directly from the IRS. So that tool is very helpful. But the question is, which parent do we have to get it from? And the answer is both. And, and, and there is an exception, though, and that is sometimes, unfortunately, a child has lost complete contact with one of their parents. Don't even know where the parent is. You know, we, we, you know, we hope that the parents continue to have a relationship with the child even after divorce, that, that a relationship doesn't end. The reality is sometimes it does. What if the child can't find the parent to even uh, get that information on their return or you know, from their returns? In that case, uh, you can seek a waiver from uh, both FAFSA and CSS to, to not have to provide that information if it's impossible to find. But, you know, again, uh, what, what, I, what I would say is it's always sad when, you know, the parents divorce. That's one thing, but they're not divorcing their children. Professor Richard Gershon is reminding us and taking your tax questions concerning divorce. We're going to talk about divorce laws next week with attorney Craig Robertson. Now, if less and less people are getting divorced, are less getting married? We'll tell you next. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Ryder Taff, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advisory and co-host of Money Talks. Each week, we take your personal finance questions and tell you about a money topic we hope you find helpful. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Professor Richard Gershon is our expert host. I'm Liz Gill. We hope that you'll subscribe to our podcast. There are lots of podcasting platforms. I'm trying to move over to Stitcher. I'm on Podcast Addict, but, you know, it's hard to give up something you're familiar with. But you download the platform to your phone. It's an app. You touch the plus. That'll take you to the page to search for podcasts. Then you can type in in legal terms in the search area. It'll bring up our show, and you're able to touch the photo. You can touch subscribe if you like so that you're notified whenever we have a new episode. I always try to make sure our episodes are up by about 3 or 4 p.m. Central Time, the day that they air. You can be notified when the new episodes are up. This morning, we're talking about the IRS divorce laws with our tax expert, Professor Gershon. Now, once again, according to the CDC... The, in Mississippi, the marriage rate has kind of uh, f- fluttered a little bit. It was 6.9% in 2014, 7% in 2015, 16, uh, 6.7 in 2017, and then down to 6.3 in 2018. So make of that what you will. The Tax Cuts and Job Act... We On a previous show, we talked about repealing the deduction for alimony. Tell us about that and why that matters. Well, you know, I, I don't really – this is one I really don't understand. I, you know, I, I, uh, I'm not sure why this happened, but it used to be uh, prior to uh, 2019 – uh, it used to be that if someone uh, entered into a divorce decree and had to pay alimony, 
uh, that the payer had to pay in cash. That was their only choice. They had to pay in cash. Uh, and their cash payments would be deductible on their return. They wouldn't have to itemize those, those payments either. So they were uh, a deduction that was taken right off of their gross income. Uh, and the person who received alimony would pay the tax on the alimony. It was taxable to them. And the idea behind that was that we're shifting income from one taxpayer to the other. Typically, the person paying alimony is in a higher tax bracket, you would assume, than the person receiving alimony. So that really, in essence, cut the cost of that payment to the payor uh, and increased the benefit to the person who was receiving it. Because if I'm in the, let's say I was in the 50 percent bracket and I had to pay a dollar of alimony, uh, instead of paying 50 cents in tax on that dollar, I would be able to use that dollar to pay my alimony. I would not owe any tax on that that dollar. And let's say my, my former spouse was in the 20% bracket. They would only pay 20 cents in taxes, so they would keep 80 cents of that dollar, uh, whereas I would have only kept 50 cents of that dollar. It, it made sense, and that was the way the alimony deduction worked. It has now disappeared, and uh, it no longer um, uh, after a decrees entered into after 2019 uh, or modified. So if you had an, or an existing decree, you could still take the deduction. But if you modify your decree after 2019, you can't uh, you can't take uh, the alimony deduction anymore. And the and the alimony is not income to the other spouse. Now, the reason that matters is because now if I was let's say I was again, there is no 50 percent bracket uh, at this time. It, but it makes the math easier for me. If I had a dollar that I had to pay an alimony, I give my spouse, my former spouse, that dollar. I still have to pay that 50 cents on that dollar in taxes. So that's going to cost me a dollar 50 in essence to give my spouse a dollar of alimony. They're going to get to keep the full dollar because it's not going to be taxable to them anymore. So, you know, it really does change the economics of, of um, that transfer. And I actually spoke to the Chantry Court judges uh, before, uh, back in 2018, before this happened, and talked to them about how important it is for them to consider the repeal of the alimony deduction when they're making alimony awards because it does affect the economic ability of the person to pay. You know, if I, if I no longer get the deduction and I still have to pay the tax on the alimony I transfer, uh, that's going to reduce the amount of alimony I can, I can really pay comfortably uh, to my former spouse. And if you have questions about alimony and how that's allocated, that's going to be the next show. We want you to send your email in or call in next week when we talk about actual divorce laws. Today we're talking about tax laws in divorce. All right. So if you were divorced before 2019, so that was in 2018, you and you had so you maybe you were divorced in 2017, 2018. That was before the Tax Cuts and Job Act uh, was enacted. You you still can take the alimony deduction. Is that right? That's right. If you had a, and really uh, the the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was actually uh, enacted in 2017, effective 2018, but they did give a year leeway. So any divorce entered into in 2018 or before. Uh, the alimony is still deductible. Uh, any and so what you'll see on a, on a 1040 is you know it'll ask you the timing of of the divorce to see if your alimony payments are deductible or if they're not. If you got divorced uh, January first, twenty nineteen, if the courthouse was open, that's too late, and uh, the decree uh, alimony paid under that decree would not be deductible. The mistake people can make though is sometimes they go back for a modification. 
So let's say I was paying, uh, you know, $1,000 a month in alimony. I want to get it reduced to $900 a month. If I have that modification met done after 2019, uh, after the beginning of 2019, then that becomes a decree that's uh, modified in, you know, after the, the date that the re- uh, repeal goes into effect. And so I can no longer deduct that alimony. So people need to be really careful about that. Uh, because it really is uh, entered into or modified after after the beginning of 2019. Um, one one thing that people can do though here's here's a planning tip. Uh, it used to be that alimony had to be paid in cash, and so uh, it, you know there was no way around that. If you wanted to take the deduction, you couldn't give property, you couldn't give anything else. What people are doing now uh, to try to at least uh, maximize some tax planning. Uh, with alimony is they're transferring, they're making a lump sum transfer of their retirement plan to their to their former spouse. Uh, so you know, if, if, as long as I can uh, make those withdrawals um, without uh, paying tax on them immediately, if I t- if I make that transfer directly to my former spouse as a lump sum, what I'm doing is actually shifting uh, potential income that would have been taxable to me to my former spouse. And so that's one way that we can have alimony uh, paid where I, in essence, uh, even though I don't technically get a deduction, I won't have to pay tax on that uh, money from that IRA that I would have had to pay for if I had taken it out myself. And then my spouse will be taxed on that income when my spouse withdraws that money later. So I've heard of people using um, that planning uh, now that alimony is no longer deductible. Okay, wait, let's, whoa, (laughs) let's back up just a second. So this would be if an individual was divorced uh, before or does this have anything to do with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act? Either it way, does. it does. Okay. So, and you want to wait. This this really is best for people who are over fifty nine and a half because if you withdraw money from your account um, prior to fifty nine and a half, you can be uh, subject to a ten percent tax. Yeah, that's when they'll have all those big penalties. Exactly. Okay. But for the right in the right situation, this lump sum transfer as part of the divorce decree uh, to satisfy the alimony obligation can shift the tax burden from the, the payor spouse to the, to the recipient spouse. Uh, and, and because it's not deductible, we don't worry that it's not a direct cash payment that they have access to right away. So it, it basically becomes retirement fund for the former spouse that they can withdraw later after their 59 and a half and avoid all the uh, 10% penalties. But they'll pay tax on it. And the person who transferred the IRA, the, the spouse who transferred the IRA, will not have to pay tax on, on that money. So is, you know, this, it, so is this a way to modify a divorce decree and after 2019, but then you still wouldn't have to pay taxes on it if you were the giver from your IRA to your spouse? That's right. And so it's a workaround. Now, a couple of cautions. I mean, this doesn't work for everybody because... A lot of times the person who needs alimony needs to have access to that money right away. And so, you know, if the person's a younger person, they're not 59 and a half, and they start taking with the, the money out uh, because they need the support right away, they're going to be subject to that 10% penalty. So uh, you got to be careful. It's really for uh, more for older divorcing couples. It's one way for them to uh, 
be able to shift the tax burden from the person who is paying to the person who's receiving the, the benefit of the income. But the idea behind alimony, you know, at, at its core is current support. So if that spouse needs the money right away and they're not 59 and a half or older, uh, you're subjecting them to a potential 10 percent penalty to try to get that money out. So that would not be a good thing to do. Yeah, Professor Gershon, I think this is a perfect example of why we're telling everyone what the law is. We aren't commenting on any individual's particular situation. This is when uh, Professor Gershon is letting us know what's what are the options, what is allowable, and then it's up to each individual to seek their tax preparation advisor or speak with their attorney to see what would be best for them. Right. Don't try this on your little brothers and sisters at home, right? You know, that's what we used to say. <laughs> no, no experimentation. What if you want more information? I'll tell you where to go next. This is In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. Thank you for being part of In Legal Terms. If you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show in legal terms dot mpbonline.org it's also available on the mpb public media app as are all our local shows i'm liz gill here with professor richard gershon from the university of mississippi school of law we have a wealth of information for you in legal terms dot mpbonline.org has our past episodes We had a different tax show about fringe benefits on February 4th, 2020. We had another show about the new tax laws on November 19th, 2019. So poke poke around on our site. We might have just what you need to hear. It's also election primary day in Mississippi. We want to remind everyone the polls are open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. Don't let the rain keep you in. We had Secretary of State Michael Watson on our February 25th, 2020 program. We hope that you'll go out and vote for the individuals that may be crafting our laws. Today, we're talking about the tax consequences of divorce. Let's recap a little bit, uh, Professor Gershon. We did get an email from uh, an individual in Jackson, up oh, Flowood, and uh, asked the legal show on now about filing taxes separately versus jointly. As a married couple, I always thought filing jointly was much, much more financially beneficial than separately. Well, you know, if you if you add it up, uh, the couple to get will pay the same amount. The couple will pay the same amount, whether they file jointly or separately. Now, each individual 
uh, may pay less by filing separately. Uh, you know, one may pay less and one may pay more. But combined, the way the rates work is essentially they took the married filing jointly rates and cut them in half. And that's how you get the married filing separate rates. Actually, you're better off filing uh, as a single person uh, than you are the married filing uh, separately. Uh, in mo- in many cases, so um, you know it's just something that it's a it's a tool that uh, couples use when one when they have separate businesses and they want to keep their finances separate, and maybe one has uh, you know uh, a greater number of deductions in the year than the other one does, and uh, they they want to pay their in, uh, income taxes separately. They can do that, but the combined amount of tax they're going to pay will be the same. All right, and. Once again, we covered this a little bit earlier, but for folks who are just tuning in, who gets to claim the children as the dependents on their tax return? Well, the presumption is that the primary residential parent, and that's something that uh, you know should be determined by the court or by the agreement uh, that the parties have where the children are going to reside most of the time. Now, it's possible, you know, you could have true uh, joint custody, true uh, shared uh, residential uh, you know, agreements where they spend as much time with one parent as they do the other. And then the, then the parties just need to decide who's going to take that, that uh, exemption. Um, it's important because that is also how you determine who gets to file as a head of household. And it also determines uh, who's going to take the child tax credit. We found out during the tax cuts and jobs acts tcja i had to go change my w-4 i i was all wonked out and last year we had to pay so much income tax i haven't gotten my tax returns done for this year yet or for 2019 but when you're going through a divorce do you need to look at your w-4 and remind us what a w-4 is Right. Well, that you know, that's withholding, and and it tells if you if you are employed, then you need to let your employer know what uh, how much to withhold each each month, and and their assumption is going to be you know you get to you tell them how many dependents you have, and they're going to base uh, the withholding on the number of dependents. I mean, if you're in a situation where you end up owing taxes, you probably need to adjust that so that they withhold more because you don't want to owe an underpayment penalty at the end of the year. Uh, you know, I did just do our taxes, and we, we always end up owing a little bit of money. Um, my wife is freelance and, and uh, as an editor. So, uh, you know, we, we, we do pay some estimated taxes, but we end up not, you know, guessing exactly right and owing a little bit. Uh, and, um, and that's okay. Uh, but, you know, you do want to make sure. So, you know, one thing I could do if I wanted to, to deal with that is just have the university withhold more money from my, uh, from my paycheck each month uh, to cover that difference. So, um, yeah, that's, that's something people need to consider in divorce. Uh, some other things they need to think about will be uh, if there's child support, you know, is child support deductible? What are the tax consequences of, of child support? And, uh, you know, that's an important question, but child support's never been deductible. It, it's never been something that uh, the tax law has allowed the payer to deduct. It's not something that, uh, that the uh, recipient has to pay tax on. And somebody might say, well, why is that? And, and the answer is, well, because, you know, we're all, uh, even in divorce, we're still obligated to take care of our children. And so, you know, that obligation follows us through, and it's not deductible. If it was deductible, if child support was deductible, then uh, each of us should be able to take uh, a deduction for the expenses we pay if we're in a, in a, uh, a more, uh, you know, a 
unified relationship uh, where both parents are present and uh, and the children are being raised by both of them. So it's not a deductible expense. All right. So backing up, child support, and and it is always labeled. We don't commingle the money. Is it always specifically labeled as child support? It should be, okay. uh, you know, and, and it was especially important to do it when alimony was deductible and child support uh, is not. So prior to 2019, it was essential because, you know, I could try to disguise child support as alimony uh, if I was sneaky. And so I could try to say I'm taking a deduction when, in fact, that was really uh, intended to be child support. So it was always a good thing to separate those two out so you knew how much was child support. The other thing is, since alimony was deductible and therefore tax favored, if I if I owed, say, $2,000 a month, uh, 1000 in alimony and 1000 in child support, and I only paid $1,000, the, the law then would say that that $1,000 would go first to child support. I would first have to satisfy my child support obligation before I got any tax benefit of the alimony deduction. Uh, it's less important after 2019 you know, how you allocate those, but uh, you know, there, there are mechanisms to enforce child support payments. Uh, and you know, we, we think uh, you know, the, it, it's very important for a family to support their children. Uh, and, and so you know, calling something child support puts it in a priority situation. All right. So after 2019, there are no more deductions for alimony and there have never been deductions for child support. That's right. Okay. Now let's talk about property settlements. Uh, Remind us what a property settlement is in a divorce and is that taxed? It's not. And it's really... uh, you know, I, I think Debbie could speak uh, more uh, expertly on this than I can. But uh, really, courts now in Mississippi and throughout the country are trying to use property settlements uh, up front in lieu of alimony. So they will do the property settlement first uh, and then base alimony and, and even to some extent child support on how that uh, equitable distribution is made between the parties. Um, there was a time when it was. Uh, there was a, a tax consequence. Um, I, I remember when I was studying tax law, you know, back in the, when we used uh, stone and, and uh, chisels to, to take notes. Um, it, we, if, if I had, uh, let's say I paid $1,000 for stock and I, had to, I was getting divorced and the stock was worth $10,000 at the time of my divorce and I had to give that stock to my former spouse uh, as part of a property settlement, I had a $9,000 gain that was, in fact, taxable. Uh, and my spouse would then have a, a basis, we'd say her basis was 10000 So if she sold the stock for $10,000, uh, she would not have any gain on that. That's not true anymore. Now what happens is when, when parties are divorced, the, the law changed so that uh, transfer of property, this has been around for a little while, so it's not, this did not happen in 2017. Uh, transfer in a property settlement is not a taxable event to either party. And in that case, my former spouse would simply take the same basis in the stock that I had. So it would be as if she uh, paid $1,000 for the stock just like I had. And so when she sold it for 10000 she would be the one taxed on that gain of 9000 That made a lot more sense. Um, it, uh, you know, the, the IRS was finding that it was creating problems for them because they had to track that through. And so property settlements are not taxable, and they're a very useful tool uh, for courts to try to equalize uh, the property for the parties and, and to a large extent take care of things like support. So you do see them used more and more in lieu of uh, large amounts of alimony. 
Let's go back um, to ask about a, a few other little uh, thises and that's. When you're going through a divorce, you usually have attorneys and attorney fees. Is that are attorney fees deductible for, on your taxes? Uh, sadly, no. Uh, um, you know, it, there uh, you can uh, deduct expenses related to production of income. You can deduct expenses related to uh, you know business uh, expenses. So it could be that um, if you're getting advice relating to a, a, a business that you've got uh, that you're having to uh, give part of to your former spouse, and there's some planning involved there, that those expenses could be deducted by the business itself. But uh, unfortunately, no. Yeah, uh, that's that's the simple answer. If in 2019 you're getting a refund, uh, the the people who were married in 2019, but maybe in 2020, we're already into March. So maybe someone got a divorce in January or February or the beginning of March. But in 2019, they got a refund. Can you... Uh, you know, I don't remember on the tax form. I know sometimes you can get a direct deposit. Can you get that directly deposited into two different accounts to split a refund? Or would that be part of the the uh, divorce settlement? Uh, you you can, and I think the you know one. I know that uh, tax software will allow you to do that. So a lot of times it's really less about you know what the federal government allows, and much more about you know if you're using TurboTax or something like that. You know they'll t- they'll ask which account you want it to go into, and you can split the accounts that way. But um, that's something the parties need to agree. It's a really really important question, Liz, especially that year of the divorce. Uh, the parties are going to get a refund. They need to figure out what's going to happen with that refund. And they need to spell it out in writing. You know, the, the thing that I say a lot on this show is that really what lawyers really do is write instructions for people, especially transactional lawyers. So the divorce lawyer or the couple themselves, if they do the agreement themselves, need to think about trying to uh, give instructions for what happens in certain situations. And that's a fairly common one that they need to address up front so there's no confusion. Well, and... Uh, We want to make sure we let people know that we will have a link to Publication 504, Divorced or Separated Individuals for Use in Preparing Your 2019 Tax Return. It's an Internal Revenue Service Guide that will make for some lovely bedtime reading. It's a coffee table book. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Professor Gershon, thank you so much. We always appreciate getting to uh, chat more with you and get the full extent of your knowledge. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. We're going to wrap up today's In Legal Terms. Thanks to our call screener, Michelle McAdoo, and our board engineer, Jay White. So for Professor Richard Gershon, who hosts from the University of Mississippi School of Law, I'm Liz Gill. We hope you'll join us next Tuesday at 10 a.m. for In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.